0: Let me just say it's an honor to be here, Jay, and thank you for inviting me. Genesis chapter 15 is what we're going to look at. In this series that Jay began last week, we're looking at Jesus' example in Matthew chapter 6 of how we're to pray, right? And again, the intention of Jesus' prayer is to lay, ba- lay bare the intentions of our hearts when we pray. Instead of it being like a a mantra to dictate what we say, it is instead, as Jay mentioned last week, a model to direct our thoughts and to lay bare the intentions of our heart on what is most important. Most important. So I've been tasked with the second phrase in the model prayer, in the Lord's Prayer. And here's how it goes. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I've asked you to turn to Genesis 15, right? That's not Matthew 6. That's okay, right? Why would I do such a thing? Well, there is much to understand in the phrase, God, we want your kingdom to come here, right? Well, what is God's kingdom? What does that even mean, right? What are we talking about? Well, we've got to do a little bit of biblical theology tonight. I hope you'll follow along with me. I hope it's exciting, right? My hope is not to bore you or to speak like a first-year seminary student, right? But to help you and uh, maybe help all of us grasp the direction of God's story, where it's going, right? And the connection between the Old Testament that we sometimes feel far removed from to the New Testament. And then lastly, to find your place in it. To find your place in it. So Genesis 15, what's going on? Let's look at it. All right, verses one through four. I'm going to summarize some of this. Uh, verses one through four, we see that God is speaking to Abraham. Abraham, we didn't know him until chapter. 12 of the book of Genesis, and the, the way we know anything about Abraham is basically he was a pagan. He was a random guy, right? In Genesis chapter 11, God noticed a group of people that had tried to, in pride, exalt themselves and become like God. And their goal was to make their name great. And God humbled them, scattered them abroad, and confused their language. Genesis 12, he says, Abraham, uh, you. I'm like, what? No, You. I'm going to make your name great. It's going to be my doing. And in in Genesis 15, God makes a promise to Abraham. And here's the promise. Verse 5. He brought Abraham outside and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you can. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, we know from a few verses earlier that his wife is barren. They don't have any kids. Have you ever tried to count the stars? Right? It's impossible. Jesus says it's impossible. God's saying you can't do that. Right? And then in verses 7 through 11, follow along. Right? What God has Abraham do to confirm that what he says is true is to go grab some different animals. And then what he tells Abraham to do with those animals is actually to cut them in half. It's kind of odd, right? And then to like lay them out where half of the animal is here, and half of the animal is over here. And then in verse 17, it says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed in between the pieces that Abraham had cut. Verse 18. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And he goes on to explain where and whose land that is and whose land it will be. So what's going on in this passage? What's going on? Well, let's say a few things. God visits Abraham in a vision, says, fear not, I'm with you. I'm going to bless you. Confused, struggling with the situation, Abraham replies, but, but we keep trying to have kids. It's not working. It's not working. God says, yes, you're going to have your own child. In fact, I plan to make the number of your children rival the number of stars in the sky. Abraham, in verse 6, trusts him. He cannot see the promise yet, but he trusts God. And then in verse 7 through 21, follow along with me, God reminds Abraham, he's the sovereign God who brought him out of his homeland. And then he reaffirms his plan to give him, listen, a land and a people who will rule and dwell with the Lord in peace. A people and a land as numerous as the stars. A people as numerous as the stars living in a land where God will dwell and rule and they will under his leadership, in peace. Abraham says, how's that going to happen? He brings a cow, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon, animals that would later be used in sacrifices in the Old Testament. Had not yet been, but would later be. And he had him cut him in half. Now, now that sounds crazy, right? D- do not go home, Right? Or go back to Missouri where a lot of these animals actually are, right? And find them and say, I want to get really close with God. And so I'm going to make a deal with them. And I'm going to start going on to other people's farmlands and take a hatchet and just start chopping things right? Bad idea, okay? Back in that day, however, in the ancient Near East, right, this was a common thing, right? You would take uh, some of your prized possessions, which would be your animals, you would sacrifice them, you would lay them out, and maybe someone with you would sacrifice some of their animals, and they would lay them out, and you would actually make a gentleman's, or ladies, sorry, agreement, right, together. You'd, uh, instead of spitting on your hand and shaking, or instead of like making like a, a blood agreement, whatever, you would shake hands and say, I will keep my end of the bargain." The other person would say, "I'll keep my end of the bargain, and if I don't, may I be like the animals who have been cut in half." In other words, I'll keep my end of the promise at the cost of my life." Then all of a sudden, when it got dark, Abram, not in the midst of the sacrifices, saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch in the sacrifices without him. As we know, the Lord would actually later lead God's people in a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. So, in this story, God is going in the pieces himself without Abram he's taking upon himself alone the promise to accomplish his word and vows to be destroyed if he not keep it. You say, that sounds crazy. Well, that's what the book of Hebrews says. Hebrews six thirteen through 14. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now, if you're not getting it yet, what's taking place here, I'm going to say it like three different ways so that you grasp it. What's taking place here is God is going to the place of promise in the sacrifice, and making the promise to a believing Abram that he would, at the pledge of his own life, keep his promise to create an offspring of his own, an offspring of Abraham, a people of his own possession, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, who would reign with him in his own land forever. In other words, God, at the pledge of his own life, promised that there will be a promised and protected people of his own possession, the very offspring of Abram, who will Rightly dwell on a beautiful land that he will give him. In other words, he is going to, at the cost of his own life, come where sacrifices had been made and be the ultimate sacrifice for his people. In Genesis 15, there's thousands of years still before Jesus would come and walk the earth. He's going to come in in the midst of many sacrifices that had that had occurred and say, The cost of my own life, this will happen this will happen. God is going to, at the cost of his own life, create a family of faith. Faith like Abram, who believed in the future promises of God he could not yet see. See, see, here's the difference between us in the New Testament and Abraham in the Old Testament. He had a, a faith in the future promises of God. We, now on this side of what occurred 2,000 years ago, have faith in the finished work of God. BCM, let me ask you a question. Because the promise is for Abraham's offspring, right? Who is that? Who is that? Galatians 3. And, And before even Galatians 3, John 1. For those with faith, he gave the right to become them, to become the children of God, who not by blood nor the will of man, but by faith. Galatians 3, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Faith like Abraham. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Listen. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. It's Galatians 3. Heirs according to promise. What promise? Genesis 15. According to Galatians 3, who's Abraham's offspring? Every single person on the face of the earth who's trusted in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who are the heirs? Of the land that's to come. Who are the heirs of God's promise? From Galatians 3, we see it's those who are in Christ. By faith, you are Abraham's offspring. Genesis 15 was talking about you. Was talking about you. Uh, When Abraham looked at the stars in the sky, God knew that you were one of those stars. By faith, you are Abraham's offspring. Romans 4. That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise... Genesis 15 may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Why do I tell you this? Well, I tell you this first to just show you that God has and is keeping the promise he made to Abraham. Um, my wife and I, when we first started dating, uh, we began to discuss. We, we, we kind of like knew that we liked each other enough that we kind of wanted to get married. We didn't really know what marriage looked like. But like, you know, I, I had dated a number of girls in high school. Not because that was not a, whatever, right? And, uh, and, uh, and when I met my wife, I'm like, okay, I'm marrying this one, right? Uh, now, I didn't know what marriage looked like or anything like that. But after about a year of dating, we began to have some of those conversations about marriage You know, like, how many kids would you like to have? And so my my wife was like, well, I want a big family. Well, I come from a family of two, me and my sister. Uh, My cousins on my mom's side are a family of two, a boy and a boy. And then my family on my dad's side, uh, there's three siblings. There's two girls and a boy. So big family for me was three, Right. That was bigger than what I, have, I ever experienced. All I knew was like homeschool families had really big families, right? Uh, I was like the, we, the the interesting. I shouldn't say weird. Interesting families, right? At our church, right? Now, now, hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. Hear me. We plan on homeschooling, so I can say that, right? All right. So, <laughs> oops. Okay. So, so she said, no, 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 like like six thinking, you're crazy. Will that work? Like, does that, I don't know how, well, that's not going to work. She she had been in a family of two, but her cousins, there was 10 in one family. Like, cheaper by the dozen almost, right? And she had seen that and loved it. She loved a big family. Now, I I know you don't need to know all my business, but um, by the Lord's providence and sovereign care, we're probably not going to have more than the two that we have now right? Uh, We're probably not going to be able to. However, I can tell you this, the Lord loves a big family. The Lord loves a big family. In fact, that's his idea. God's plan is one big family, right? That doesn't mean that you need to have a big family, but God's plan is one big family. Again, look at the stars, so shall your offspring be. Now now we need a really 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 big picture of Genesis 15. All right? A whole Bible view of Genesis 15. Because the promise God made of his own life through the sacrifice in Genesis 15 became a promise he kept by giving his own life as a sacrifice. Jesus, God in the flesh, gave his flesh to gather a people for his own possession from every tribe, nation, tongue, people, and language. Listen, there might have been only like 12 to 500 people following Jesus 2,000 years ago, but do you know what statisticians say right now? There's about 2.68 billion people on the face of the earth right now who proclaim to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You better believe he's going to accomplish that which he said he's going to accomplish. And that doesn't even consider the last two millennia of believers who have Gone to be with the Lord, right? And if you don't think He's going to keep His promise, we have a picture of the future because Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 says this I looked, this is John now, right? He has a vision from the Lord. This is not Abraham looking at the stars, this is John getting a vision from the Lord at the end of days. I looked and behold, see if this phrase sounds kind of familiar. A great multitude that no one could number. Hey, look at the stars and see if you can number them. That no one could number. From every nation, from every tribe, from every people and from every language, and what is this people doing? They're standing before the throne. The God they serve is king. And this is a picture of his kingdom. From all tribes, peoples, nations, languages. And they're clothed in white robes. They've been given white robes. They've been made pure. With palm branches in their hands. And they're crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. He will bring his kingdom. He will. That's his promise. Jesus sitting on the throne even today. With all authority in heaven and on earth. We'll make sure of it. It will be built as the gospel goes out, his kingdom. And it will be brought when God returns for his people. Here's my question tonight. In everything you're pursuing in this university. In everything you aim For in life. Is this chief? Is this higher and greater than them all? That you would stand around the throne of God. Linked with arms from those you were in classrooms with. Worshiping God and saying salvation belongs to him. Is that your greatest aim in life? That's the aim of the prayer. God your kingdom come. And not just for me. On earth. For everyone. For every tribe, nation, tongue, people, and language. For those I don't even like. I want them to stand around me. And maybe here's another question. What part do you see yourself playing in that? Because God's means of accomplishing His plan is you. Empowered by His Spirit, you. He will see to it its end. But his plan is to use you to his end. Do you desire that end? Do you want his kingdom and his will here? It will be. So what does it look like to desire that? To pray to that end? Well, I have three. Three simple phrases to help describe to you what it looks like to desire God's kingdom come and God's will be done here. His will that is done right now. In heaven, where Revelation gives us a picture in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, people, angels, all the beings that currently are in heaven are worshiping God now there. Where all is pure and righteous and just and good. What does it look like to desire that here? Three things. If you're a note taker, here's your your notes. Ready? Number one. If you want to see God's kingdom come and will be done here as in heaven, number one, pursue Christ's likeness. Let me explain. Pursue Christ's likeness. These are easy, uh, tangible phrases, yet much more difficult in life. To make it your aim to pursue Christ's likeness above all else. I mean, we pray his will be done on earth as in heaven. Well, a good question to ask is, what is his will? What does that look like? It looks like Jesus, who is the perfect image of Almighty God. God himself dwelling among us. What does holiness look like? It looks like Jesus who brought his nature, that it can exist perfectly in heaven, and brought himself to earth and dwelt among us. He did not sin, so what does it look like for heaven to meet earth? It looks like Jesus. Maybe ask the question, uh, what disobedience to God exists in heaven? None. None. And so what does it look like as we pray for God's will to be done here as it is in heaven? It's to pursue Christ with all of ourselves, running from disobedience, repenting of sin, and hard-charging running after Jesus. This is a prayer that expresses the desire of God's ways as they are in heaven, where all is glorious and good, perfect and pure to be on earth. Where does that begin? It begins with you. It is a prayer for God's ways to be your ways so that His will is seen and known on the earth. The desire for God's ways out here directly corresponds with obedience to God's will in here. We are called in Jesus' sermon on the mount where it gives perfect application and instruction of the law, to be a different sort of people, to look differently in the world, to almost give a testimony to a supernatural kind of living. It's only possible when one has the Holy Spirit dwelt within them and has been born again. God's community is called on this earth to be a sort of reflection of what heaven looks like for the earth. A visually unavoidable Christ-like witness. I I I, I share this at almost like every time I talk about being different because I think it's incredible. All right, in, in the earliest days of the church, there was a man who wrote a letter. This is after the canon was closed. The, the Bible had fully been written, if you will, to describe Christians and why they're so weird. Can I describe to you by reading a letter written around 150 AD what the world saw in Christians? Are you ready? For Christians cannot be distinguished from the rest of the human race by country or language or customs. They do not live in cities of their own. They do not use a peculiar form of speech. They do not follow an eccentric manner of life. This doctrine of theirs has not been discovered by the ingenuity or deep thought of inquisitive men. Nor do they put forward a merely human teaching, as some people do. You ready? Yet, although they live in Greek and barbarian cities alike, as each man's lot has been cast, and follow the customs of the country in clothing and food and other matters of daily living, in other words, they don't dress weird, right? At the same time, they give proof of the remarkable and admittedly extraordinary constitution of their own citizenship. They live in their own countries, but only as aliens. They have a share of everything as citizens, but endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their fatherland, and yet for them every fatherland is foreign land. They marry like everyone else, and they have children, but they don't cast out offspring they don't want, which was common in Roman culture. They share their houses with each other, but not their beds. It is true that they are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but in their own lives, they go far beyond what the laws require. They do love all men, and by all men, they are persecuted. They are unknown, and still yet they are condemned. They are put to death, and yet they are brought to life. They are poor, and yet they make many rich. They are completely destitute, and yet they enjoy complete abundance. They are dishonored, and in their very dishonor, they are glorified. They are defamed and are vindicated. They are reviled, and yet they bless. When affronted, they still pay due respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers undergoing punishment And undergoing punishment, they rejoice because they are brought to life. They are treated by the Jews as foreigners and enemies and are hunted down by the Greeks. And all the time, those who hate them find it impossible to justify their hatred. Some in the early church really lived it out. What does it look like for heaven to meet earth first, Jesus? But we're supposed to be. An image of Jesus to the world so that they see what heaven is like. pursue Christ likeness number two there's only three number two prioritize evangelism number one, pursue Christ likeness number two, prioritize evangelism. I want to tell you something kind of cool. I learned it early on and uh, read some book that I just thought was fascinating all right so number two is prioritize evangelism when the early Christians in writing the text of Scripture, used the word gospel, they were not using a new word. The word had been around in Rome for some time. We can read in the writings of Josephus and other early historians that, in fact, it was a word often used for what Caesar brought. In fact, typically, uh, when Rome, that was a huge, mega country would go out and overtake another country. They would come back from war with the spoils of war. They would enter Rome and Caesar would lead that processional. Everyone would cheer and then Caesar would get in a high place and give the good news of the kingdom that had expanded. The good news of Rome. The word was evangelion, gospel. And here come these Christians who follow after Jesus with their whole lives and are willing to lay down their lives for Jesus. A man who says his kingdom is not of this world and yet was crucified. And their message is simply, they don't have the gospel. We have the real good news. And you know what? The glory of Rome is gone. Rome is but a glorious idea of the past. People visit it to see ancient ruins. It was taken over. Its gates could not stand. But you know what? The one gospel, those 12 and a few more talked about of Jesus. Yeah, we serve a kingdom whose gates will not fall. And whose kingdom is ever expanding all across the world. In Asia, Africa, Europe, South America, everywhere. You cannot stop this gospel. And you cannot stop the kingdom. God's building his kingdom as he builds his church. And we play a part in calling people to recognize there is but one king on the throne. We call people to repent of their sin, their former way of living. And we call people to respond to the good news of what Christ has done, bearing, him, bearing upon himself the right wrath of God towards sinners, so that sinners might have life in his name and have it freely and abundantly forever. We call people to recognize the king, repent of sin, and respond to his gospel in faith. Let me just tell you one more really quick thing before I move on to number three. Isaiah 2, 600 or more years before Jesus walked the earth, there was this prophecy. Prophecy goes something like this. In the midst of a bunch of destruction that takes place, where God pours out his wrath, there's this glimmer of hope at the beginning of Isaiah 2. And what's happening in Isaiah 2 is there's the mountain of the house of the Lord, or Zion, if you will, which Revelation says is eventually, at least, the dwelling place of God with man, the new heavens and new earth. And what Isaiah 2 says is that the nations are streaming there, and they're streaming uphill. It's unnatural. It doesn't make sense. And as the nations are streaming there, there's people saying, Come! Come on! We're going to the mountain of the house of the Lord! We're going to heaven. And they do. They do. You know what Revelation says at the very end in Revelation 22? Come and let the bride say, come. We're going to the mountain of the house of the Lord. And you know what? Isaiah 2, we're going to lay down our swords and we're going to lay down our spears and instead we're going to use pruning hooks and we're going to use shovels and whatever, what have you, for a great harvest that's going to come. We're going to call people to believe in King Jesus who's seated, he's not shaken, he's not worried, he's on the throne. Number three, plant yourself in a church. Number one, Number one, pursue Christlikeness. Number two, number two, prioritize evangelism. Number three, plant yourself in a church. The local church, as I always tell our students, is a necessary gift. A necessary gift. You are commanded to be a part of a local church for your soul. It's a gift. Plant yourself in a church where you will consistently be, ready for three things? Practicing worship for eternity. What are the people doing standing around the throne? Salvation belongs to God. Number two, not only practicing worship, but preparing each other for Christ's return. To uh, talk about discipleship with a lot of students. Here's what I say about discipleship. Uh, I take them to two verses. Uh, It's Hebrews, well, two sections of Scripture. It's Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Here's what it says. Consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another as the day draws near. So with the end in mind, meet together because you need it for encouragement. And then Hebrews 12, 15, it says this. See to it, this is a command for us, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. What is your role in a local church? Well, primarily, it's seeing to it that those that you have surrounded yourself around don't fail to obtain the grace of God. In other words, you are to do everything you can in discipleship to make sure, to the best of your ability, trusting in the Lord's ability, that those who cross the finish line of life cross over the threshold of heaven's door. Of heaven's door. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So what did I say? Preparing, practicing worship for eternity, preparing each other for Christ's return, and lastly, picturing heaven on earth. Part of praying that God's will will be done on earth is participating in the local church. Why do I say that? Well, the local church is a picture of heaven and a war-torn world. It is a kingdom embassy in the midst of the kingdom of this world. It is shouting, God reigns and he's good and all who come may have life in his name. We swing wide the doors of the church for anyone and everyone to open Come, uh, open for anyone to come in the doors and ask questions about God so that they might know him, follow him, and know the love he has. You want a foretaste of heaven? Meet together with God's people on a Sunday morning. So I want to remind you of three things. What does it look like to earnestly desire that God's kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven? pursue christ Here's your reminder. Pursue Christ-likeness. Prioritize evangelism and plant yourself in a church. I'll say this. God's kingdom has arrived in Christ and its end will be accomplished by his power as he sits on his throne through his people, empowered by his spirit. So the only question is, Is this the cry of your heart? Do you want anything more? One more. One more thing. I had this crazy idea about a year ago to write a kid's book. I'd read a passage of scripture with my son at night. It was in Revelation, which I don't necessarily recommend. I had studied it the week before. And let me just summarize it real quick. And I hope this brings you great encouragement. Revelation is written to seven churches, at least originally, real churches that existed during a time of great persecution. What did they need to hear? Well, God thought that John needed to write down this story in Revelation 12. He said, there's two signs. A lot of signs and symbols in Revelation. There's two signs the first is a woman who's going to give birth Okay, so mind you i'm not telling you anything like crazy interpretation or revelation here right i'm avoiding the controversy parts there's this woman who's going to give birth to a male child that's what it says she's crying in birth pains for that time to come no one doubts that that's god's people awaiting the messiah and the boy is jesus i mean he quotes Psalm 2 in a second, and no one doubts that that's Jesus. So we're not not on any kind of doubts here. This is going to come. In fact, to those listeners, he'd already come. That's the first sign. The second sign is this. Are you ready? There's this great dragon. And he had come to devour the child. Now in verse 7, it tells us the dragon is the devil, so we don't have to speculate here. And so you've got a baby. Being born, awaited Messiah. And then you've got a dragon, which is Satan. And his goal is to devour that child. Kind of grotesque language, right? Hence Revelation. And all that's said is this. But the child was caught up to God and rules on the throne and basically has a chain around the dragon's neck. There's not really much more said there. What is trying to be communicated to seven persecuted churches? The dragon lost. You, you want the summary of Revelation 12? He lost. In fact, and I, I hope I'm in control. this. In fact, the chain around his neck will one day be yanked hard enough. He's a lion on a leash, and God's holding it. The one who sits on the throne with a scepter. The dragon lost. That should bring you great encouragement. As you go to all people. With all the teachings of Jesus. As he's with you all the days of your life. And as he has all authority on earth. We pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done here as in heaven.